0: Hello, this is Alex Burkett, co founder of Omniscient Digital, and you are listening to the Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Josh Garofalo. Josh is a SaaS consultant and a copywriter and is the owner of Sway Copy. In this episode, we debunk a bunch of common copywriting advice that you hear all the time. We talk about what really moves the needle in SaaS copywriting and messaging, including a bunch of tactical tips. We talk about why Josh is moving into strategic brand and messaging consulting and why ambition may be overrated. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Josh. I have a very high-level intro question. Um, how, did you, do you remember the moment that you knew you wanted to be a copywriter?
1: Um, yeah, actually it was when I discovered Joanna Weeb. um, do you know Joanna copy hackers?
0: Yeah, for sure. She's great. One of the best yeah. resources on the internet.
1: Most definitely. So I was, uh, I was at a SaaS startup at the time and, uh, basically I was the only marketer and one of my jobs was to redo the website. And, uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I had absolutely no idea how to do that. And then it was in kind of researching, like, how do I write copy for a website? Or I probably called it content at the time. How do I write content for a website? And then I found Joanna and, uh, it was when I found her stuff that I realized that this writing thing, like that in itself is an entire discipline. It's not just something marketers do on the side when they find time. Um, and then I really got into it when, uh, Joanna, Weep had a competition on her website, Uh, basically asked like the most thoughtful comment or the comment that swayed her the most, I can't remember what the criteria was, they would get a free ticket to MicroConf in Vegas to hear her speak. Mm. And uh, I won that contest. I went to Vegas, saw her speak. And uh, it was there that she told me I should probably start a business uh, focusing on this full time. And I did.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I've heard a lot of copywriters get into the game via Joanna Weeb.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I, I think that's the most common start. Uh, I don't know if it still is. It might be. I, I'm just so far away from those, uh, from the early days. I was like seven years ago. But uh, yeah, she's she's still killing it.
0: <laughs> Not to go off on a tangent, but one of my favorite books uh, that I've recently read this audiobook by Norm MacDonald. He starts one chapter by saying, like, people come up to me and ask me all the time, how do you break out success in, in show business? What do you do? And I always tell them two words or three words meet adam sandler (laughs) so it's like (laughs) to become a copywriter it's like meet joanna weeb or at least read her content i feel like that's that's mostly the answer
1: exactly now she's got so many disciples like i'm one person who credits a lot of their early days success to joanna weeb and there's a bunch of others joel kletke people in, in completely different niches as well so we've all we're all kind of preaching the same gospel that we learned from joanna back in 2015.
0: <laughs> Did you have early roots as a writer? Did you like writing stories when you were a kid? Did you kind of know that you wanted to get into the world of words, or was that newfound upon getting into the marketing space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know that I wanted to be a copywriter by any means, but uh, writing was always the most comfortable way for me to communicate. Um, I actually have on my website, like, uh, I talk about an old story where I wanted a Nintendo 64, and my mom made me write a persuasive essay to convince <laughs> her as to why I should have one. So I was like 10 years old at the time. And, uh, I guess that was kind of like my start where I kind of, I got firsthand, I got a firsthand account of like, if I can put together a good argument, I can get things. And, uh, I, again, like it was never about being a writer or being a copywriter, but it was just always something that was central to who I was and how I got what I wanted. It's, you know, it's how I would reach out to an entrepreneur when I was like 16 or 17 and ask them to go to lunch with me. Um, I kind of if I if I couldn't write then I, I wouldn't be able to do that. It's how I got into classes that I didn't have the prerequisites for in university. You know, I would, I would write to the counselor and and give them a good argument as to why I would be able to go into this class without the prerequisites and and do a good job of it. Um yeah. And then, I mean, I, I used it to get the girls back in school as well. I, I, was, a, I was that guy writing the love notes <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was writing them for my friends as well, which uh, their girlfriends didn't know. But
0: <laughs> Oh my God. You were ghostwriting? <laughs>
1: I was ghostwriting. Yeah, I didn't even know That's it was so ghostwriting funny. at the time, but yeah, I was totally ghostwriting. Um, and then, yeah, it was just uh, throughout school. Like that was just always my favorite thing. I, I wasn't necessarily a fan of Engl- English class, but I liked when I had to write like a paper. Um, in university, for example, that was kind of where I would shine.
0: What are the secrets to writing a good love letter?
1: Oh, man, it's been so long since I've written to one, written one to someone other than my wife who's obviously biased just like anything <laughs> I do. but uh,
0: there's got to be some aspect of like knowing your customer, right? Like there's some audience research, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I was that smart at the time. Um, yeah, I think it was really just like I think I honestly if i'm if I'm being honest, I got my lead from like rom-coms and like the love story movies, like the movies that guys wouldn't watch, but all the girls loved, like I would watch some of those and I, and I could kind of steal it. And like girls were, girls were um like amazed by the things that the, the male characters do in these stories and in these movies. And they're really basic things. It's really just as simple as like, notice me and like, do something special for me to show that, like you're willing to embarrass yourself a little bit in order to impress me. That's that's what a lot of those movies and those stories come down to. Um, you don't have to do anything crazy. It's just do something out of the ordinary, something that most guys wouldn't do or say, and that's what I would do in those in those little love letters. <laughs> I wish I still had them.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Does that? Does, I feel like some of that can translate to online copy today. It's like, what's the phrase when you? Um you admit some weakness, right? Like that, that sounds like that exactly. vulnerability to an extent. And then, um, yeah, so you care, like basically have customer focus copy, like focus on them, not you.
1: That's an argument I have with, uh, with founders, especially all the time is, like, let's just admit that we aren't the absolute best at everything. We'll we'll choose it. Like, we're not the best at the things that our ideal customer doesn't even care that much about. But just by admitting that we're not the best at these other things makes it a lot more believable when we say we are the best at these other things that our ideal customer really cares about. So yeah, I guess there is some carryover there if you if you want
0: to draw that line. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I feel like you probably get some pushback on that, or I would imagine so for many people who don't understand that psychological aspect, that like, if you admit weakness, you you actually build up the trust in other areas and like clearly you can't be the best at everything right you see those those comparison pages where it's just like here's the competition here's us and it's like check marks for us on everything they
1: suck at everything (laughs) even though like they've been around forever and they've raised 200 million dollars but somehow they suck at everything yeah yeah that's not the way to do it but uh yeah that that's a that's a core principle just admitting some weakness in order to make your your strengths believable and the thing is, it's weird that people fight back on this because we all do it in our everyday lives and we recognize when other people do it too. Like, if someone says, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an amazing writer, you're like, maybe. I don't know if <sighs> I believe that. But if they're like, I'm an amazing writer, but like, I cannot do algebra for the life of me. Way right. more believable because if if they're willing to talk about what they actually suck at, then maybe we should also believe them when they say they're they're good at something. So it is intuitive, but when it comes to a founder and their business, they just don't want to admit weakness.
0: And I, and Do you I think there's it. also maybe like a an inverse correlation between the the ability and the um showmanship uh, so to speak so when people maybe or companies are more confident they're more willing to admit those weaknesses or maybe not be so boisterous it reminds me of those like the twitter bio like when you've not done much it's like a forbes 30 under 30 like i'm an entrepreneur this that this and then there's like billion dollar founder who just says like i build stuff <laughs> you
1: know yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I can even think about that in myself. Like when I was a student and I would go to a conference, like I would wear a suit because I, I I was nothing, but I wanted to appear like I was something. And then you go to a conference now and sometimes you'll see the guy who was just speaking on stage. He's got like a dirty baseball cap on, a hoodie, but he's got like a hundred million dollar company. And the reason he's, he's able to do that is his actions, his deeds are, are speaking louder than anything he could show with his with his clothing. So yeah, I think it's the exact same thing.
0: And so yeah, there's the concept um, in evolutionary biology called costly signaling. So it kind of explains like the peacock's tail and why it's so extravagant, which is actually like a survival hazard. It, it shows how fit they are because they're actually carrying a cost by that, right? Exactly. It shows how powerful you are by being willing to show weakness, right? Like that's, that's a costly signal. So it's almost like this reverse showcase of power.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's funny how that works. That's true.
0: So you, I I stumbled into you. I feel like, um, you bridge these worlds of CRO and copywriting. Cause I kind of, um, associated you a lot with the CRO space. Do you, do you find that you're a member of both of those tribes or how do you think about your, your tribe membership, so to speak?
1: Definitely. Yeah. And uh, before our before this, I was actually listening to your episode with uh, Pep a little bit. And I think we're both battling something similar in that when we got started, it was all about CRO. Um, and now we're starting to see the shift and people like myself and definitely Pep and Andy Raskin and April Dunford moving away from... Like let's, let's, we've got to optimize signups. We've got to optimize sales and we're going to A, B test everything, even though we have absolutely no traffic and, 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 and uh, no conversion volume. And we're moving towards this, this space where it's a little bit more about branding. Um, so yeah, I'm fighting that same fight where a lot of people see me as the CRO and a lot of that is my fault, but, um, now it's definitely moved towards copywriting still. Um, that's kind of where I execute, where people get to see the results, but I've also moved up. Um, quite a bit over the years. So I'm doing a lot more of the positioning strategy, the messaging strategy, the customer and competitor research. Um, And that's been out of necessity, just like signing up on a project, they need copy, I realize all the inputs I need to do really good copy aren't there. Um, And so, you know, over the last seven years, I've, I've just, I've learned how to do all that stuff out of necessity. Um, So that's, that's where I'm at more these days.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think we had predicted a while back that CRO as a discipline or as a name was was going to sort of be diluted or eradicated. And it, it seems like there's specific because CRO was like this amalgamation of so many different things from like the stats and process side to the copy and messaging side to the design and user experience side. And on my side, like I was always attracted to the statistics and the experimentation, the actual protocols. And now people refer to that as experimentation with a capital E, right? Right. It's not necessarily landing page optimization. It could be product experimentation. It could be all these different things. And it's sort of this research framework. And then the copy side, it's like, you've got this whole, um, this very broad umbrella of messaging, positioning. Um, branding, and it, it seems like more and more of that is is going under there, and it's also it's more strategic too, right? It's less tactically focused on like this page.
1: Exactly, yeah. And I actually I tweeted about this recently because it was a thought I I had when I just took a look at sort of how my business has evolved um, from the early days. You know, when, when you're a new copywriter. You don't have the reps or the, the insight that you get from those reps to really move up the chain and do that strategic work. You really, you really do just need to do what you're told. They want a homepage, you write a homepage. Um, but the experienced copywriters, that the ones who have been around a lot, have fallen into projects where they didn't have all the inputs they needed to do a good job. They kind of work their way up, and they and they almost become like a, I called it like a T-shaped um, product marketer, where. Mm-hmm. You know you do a lot of the things that a product marketer is supposed to do and your area of specialty is that messaging which is um where a lot of a lot of um i guess you could say like campaigns and launches fall apart they've got brilliant strategy and then they mix it with terrible copy. And then what you've got is brilliant ideas that everyone inside the company knows, but the customer has absolutely no idea and it does not have the effect that you want. So yeah, a lot of experienced copywriters out of necessity work their way up so that they can make sure there's a nice smooth transition from um, positioning to messaging to the actual copy on
0: the websites and and core emails. On an actual business perspective, like when you're working with clients, how do you tr- how do you communicate that value of things that maybe sound a bit more nebulous and less deliverable oriented, like strategy and research? Or did that change? Like, did you used to say like, "Hey, this is my per word rate" or like my per landing page rate? And now, does that is that does that look different when you're talking to clients?
1: It has changed, and that was actually the biggest breakthrough that I've had um, in my business for sure, in terms of enjoying the work that I was doing, liking the outputs that we were having and obviously making a lot more money. So when I first got started, um, you know, they would come with me, they come to me, they would say, you know, we need these three web pages. I would say, okay, I would give them a price for those three pages. And then I would do some research and stuff on in the background so that I could actually write good copy, but I had to do it quite quickly because I was not charging for it. Um, it wasn't something that I pitched. Um, and then I had a, a time where, you know, I think most freelancers and consultants, if they're fortunate enough to get to this point where they realize, like, I can afford to have some people say no, if, mm-hmm. if that's what it takes for me to experiment with some other offers. So I got to that point, um, I want to say 2017, 2018, um, where I was ready to hear some no's. And what I did at that point is I separated the research and the strategy out as its own project. Like, if you want to work with me. Project number one is almost always going to be this research audit discovery project where um, I get to know your customer, your product, and your category, just as well as anyone at your company. And um, instead of just jumping in and and executing on these three things that you think you need, I'm going to prioritize a list of deliverables that we can then choose from and start at the top and work our way down. Um, And then instead of just making that research and strategy project like an output for my copywriting for those three pages that they wanted. Um, they actually have something that they can use when they want to bring in another copywriter or they need to have a marketer write some copy and not completely screw it up. Um, or their content team might get some ideas from it. The product team, sales even get, gets idea from it. So there's there's um, added value there and that's how I kind of sold it at that time. Um, and so what I was doing at that point was I would sell this research project and I would go deeper because now I could because I was charging for it. And then I still... Charge the exact same for the execution for the landing page, for the home page. Um, and like a lot of my projects basically ended up doubling in in revenue despite being just a little bit more work, just based on a tweak on sort of how I how I sold it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, with with our content agency, we have taken some clients in the past who are just like, we just want five posts a month or something like that. We've got a list of topics and we just want them written. And I now I don't take those clients, um, because they, people come in thinking, approaching that, that arrangement much differently than if they come in through strategy. So now strategy and research are the door by which people have to walk through. And eventually we can do the deliverables, but if we don't have control over that, um, that strategy and what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it, the actual writing itself, it's like, you're, you're probably better off just hiring a freelancer or, or maybe like a in-house person or something like that, you know, cause you, you have those insights, but the agency, like there's still a lot of like translation that goes on a lot of uncertainty around how we write that stuff. So the, I've found those just don't work super well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take the odd client that won't go through that initial research phase, but they have to have some research in place. And I always have like a pretty frank conversation, like just so you know, um, by skipping this research phase, uh, you're not going to get the same output for less money. Like we are sacrificing, we're adding guesswork in exchange mm-hmm. for speed and a reduction in budget. And, Sometimes that's okay. As long as everyone's okay with that uh, That conversation, it, it can work. But yeah, the majority of my clients, they, they also have to walk through that door.
0: What kind of research do you look for to have in place on one of those those engagements? Or, or what kind of research do you typically do to start copywriting?
1: Yeah. So the most important work for me is definitely um, customer interviews, customer surveys, and message mining. So with all three of those, I'm basically getting at that before, during after story and i'm also getting into um like a why us and not them story like why in most sas categories are extremely crowded um why are they choosing us and not another another provider that's on the surface quite similar and and probably just as good in a lot of ways um and then i'm i'm kind of breaking all that down organizing it tagging it um so i can actually pull from that when i when i actually write the copy um what else would i go for i mean I will look at things like screen recordings using Hotjar. Um, a lot of companies don't have that in place. Uh, help, like uh, if they have like uh, intercom on their site, I'll, I'll go through that. And it's extremely tedious, but but also extremely valuable, especially when you start to see those same questions surfacing over and over again. It's like, why isn't this on the site? Like People are asking us over and over again if they do this if, if the product does a specific thing like that should probably be on the website then obviously people care about it and they're not seeing it. Um, so that's that's another place where I spend a lot of time and then obviously like I'll speak to sales, uh, support success, people who are customer facing usually before I start interfacing with the customer, just to give me a bit of an education. Um, but yeah, that's where, that's where the bulk of it is. Um, not as much in the way of, uh, data like analytics, AB test results these days, just because most of my SaaS clients, they can't really do that properly. They don't have mm. the volume or they don't have the resources in house to actually like to run tests, to make more than one version of something. Um,
0: yeah. Do you ever get pushback on the research components where they say something like, Hey, we, we already know this stuff. Like we, we don't need to like look at this or, Hey, we can just AB test it," or like, do you ever get that, uh, kind of, you know, hand waving, like, uh, hey.
1: Yeah, although I usually will lose those clients uh, before they've actually signed the dotted line because mm. before we get into it, I'm pretty explicit about wanting to do that. I'll, like, I'll, I'll say, like, we shouldn't do this unless you have a, a really, unless, unless you're quite sure that we're going be to be able to get at least 10 customers on a call. Like, if, if you think that's going to be a problem, this might not, might not be a fit. If, if we're going to do a survey, like, tell me if you think we're going to, we're going to get like 50 plus responses. If you think we're going to get six, like tell me so that we don't, we don't bother with that. Um, but yeah, there, there is some pushback. Um, and usually what I've learned over time is when you get a lot of pushback on that, it's because, um, you're getting hired to do the job that you can't actually do, which is, um, I guess you could say like polish a turd They They know their product kind of sucks. No one's going to want to talk to you about it. And if they do, they're not going to say nice things. <laughs> and so, uh, I've kind of, I've kind of seen that as a red flag in a lot of cases. I have to, I have to be shown evidence that I'm not walking into a situation where they think hiring me is going to help them sell a crap product. Um, that's again, that's hard one that's hard one experience. I definitely got hired to polish some turds early on
0: <laughs> yeah man i could I could definitely see that yeah um what kind of do you have questions in mind when when this insight around like why choose us over the others that's an interesting insight um how how do you provoke that how do you get to that um that insight?
1: yeah, I mean it's it's pretty basic and I'm actually amazed that when I ask a a, a client's customer like, you know, before, before you chose my client, what were you considering? or What were you using? I've actually had a lot of people where they're like, hang on just a second. Then they pull up a spreadsheet, share their screen. And they actually have like a list of like 10 competitors and um, like different criteria that were important to them. And they're often willing to send that over. So if you, if you collect enough of those, you get a really good idea of how you differentiate from the competitors and, and which uh, criteria they're evaluating on. That's amazing when that happens, but it doesn't always happen that way. Um, so the other way that you can get that is again, you ask that question, like what were you using before, um, or what were you considering? And then just kind of asking questions that get at the weaknesses of those competitors. Like why didn't this company work out? Why didn't that company work out? Um, for example, right now I'm working with, uh, do you know, circle the the Mm -hmm. community platform circle right now. And it's very obvious. Like if, if you ask a customer, you know, why don't you just do this in Slack? you'll notice, you'll notice uh, a theme arising over and over again, which is like Slack is chaos. It's you, you have a comment. If you're not always checking in, you're going to miss it. Um, so there's little, there's a little incentive to go back and actually answer old questions because they're just buried and no one's going to see your awesome contribution. Whereas in circle, everything is a lot more calm. Um, it's asynchronous. If you see something that you want to give a thoughtful response to three weeks from now, you can, and people will see it if it's good. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's pretty easy when you ask those questions. And the other place, if you can't get this from customers is negative reviews on sites like G2 crowd. Hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's a great way. If, if you know which competitors are coming up over and over again, go take a look at some negative reviews. You'll probably find some themes. There'll be obviously some of those just, you know, disheartened customers where like customer service sucks and everyone's going to have some of those. But sometimes it's, it's something like quite concrete. That you actually have, that you actually execute quite well on, and that might be a way to uh, to bake in some of that "why us" and, and not them.
0: The, the review site's interesting. I I can't believe people actually give bad reviews on G two. Like I always thought those were just like incentivized from the company. Like you you have some sort of a referral review rewards you know customer marketing type program that incentivizes those but you really have to go out of your way to like oh, yeah. <laughs> fill out a whole review that especially like a three star, right? If it's a one star, it kind of makes sense. Cause you're so pissed off, but like right. those two, three stars where it's very detailed, I'm amazed that people put the time into those.
1: Oh yeah. And if you're going to use that tactic, I mean, the one star reviews aren't usually where the money's at. Those are just people who are pissed off. And you're probably not going to, uh, to do something to make those people happy. But the two and three stars, those are the people where it's like, there was potential here, but there was just something really important missing that I thought would be here that I really needed. And that's where, that's where you might find some, some money ideas for sure.
0: For the interviews and the surveys, like who do you, who, who do you ask these questions to and when, like, is is it going to be a power user, somebody who just purchased somebody who is thinking about purchasing like a prospect or how do you kind of hone in on who to talk to?
1: Yeah, that depends a lot on the timeline and the budget, but most cases, um, I want a customer who's actually using the product has value. Um, a question I'll often ask, like my client to, to give them ideas of who they should connect me with is like, you know, which customer would you love to replicate over and over again? Let's get on a call with them. Um, and then the other thing is I don't want it to be like five years since they signed up because mm. everything's changed. The, the landscape has changed. The product has changed. Um, their business has changed. So that customer who jumps in um, is getting actual value from it, is enjoying the product um, and probably signed up within like the past six months to a year. It's usually fresh enough where they can they can actually talk about that. Um, experience where they were actually evaluating competitors and and switching and and what what caused them to look for a solution and switch because as we all know the uh, you know the cost of switching is is something that you have to overcome you can't just be a little bit better so that's there's valuable insight there um, the other thing that I like to do is and this is a lot harder is speaking to people who haven't signed up yet as well um, and it's just harder to speak to these people because they're <laughs> less they're less invested. Like the, the, it's harder to get them onto a call, but if you can, it's uh, it's, it's enlightening to see like what it is that's stopping them from signing up. And yet they're still invested enough to speak to you. Um, so those people can also be super valuable. And to a lesser extent, you speak to people who have turned from, from the project or from the product. That's not usually my, my wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, I feel like also so the prospects is interesting. Like we we do that with our sales process, and these are like sales questions. They're you know facilitating a close, but they're also very good for customer research. Mm -hmm. Um, We always ask, "How come you can't do this in house?" and uh, "Are you considering other agencies?" and like, "What dimensions are you considering?" Mm -hmm. and those things end up really supporting a lot of our positioning and like how we market ourselves as well as obviously just for that specific account like understanding their pain points like oh we actually don't have time and resources so we can't we can't fund this internally or sometimes people say like we can but we don't want to you know like we want you to take take our mind off of this so we can focus on other things so then we can start to use that language in in future sales calls and basically all marketing materials but it's it's just part of the sales process so it's so frictionless to get that information
1: do you find the, uh, the quality of the client, uh, depends on their answer. For example, I, I do some of the same as well in my own sales calls and the, the client that reaches out to me because they don't have the bandwidth is usually not as good as the client who reaches out to me because they're like, I don't know how to do this. And from ev- everything I've seen, you really know what you're doing. So I just, I want the expert to do this. Do you find there's a, there's a difference in the quality of client depending on their, their, their trigger, their pain point?
0: I haven't found patterns yet. Um, I do think that people, one of the biggest things that we look for is that they kind of, they have an inkling or an understanding of content marketing and SEO. So one of the worst things that we can hear is actually like, we, like, it's, it's usually e-com and like C that expects this because of their reliance on paid. But they're like, how soon can we see results? Like that's, that's oh, the yeah. <laughs> first question. And we're like, okay, right, right. so yeah, you don't really understand content. Right. That's very specific to our space. Um, If they, if it's that they don't have the bandwidth, um, because they're small, like they're a very, like, it's just like the founder who would be doing this. That's a bad sign. Um, but if they just haven't built out the team yet, but they hope to that, that can be a good sign because then they're usually looking for us to provide the scaffolding and like the training wheels. And usually like they'll hire somebody in house after that. And like, we'll basically end up supplementing them and, and basically, you know, pouring more rocket fuel, um, to like move faster. But yeah, if it's just, if it's just a founder, typically that's going to be like six months or something. And then they're like, fuck, I can't like <laughs> edit every one of these. And like, I, I can't have this level of like hands-on you know, control here. So yeah. yeah, there has to be a little bit more, I guess, internal bandwidth. Right. Right. Makes sense. Um, so when I do interviews, sometimes I ask like my colleagues and uh, team to, uh, pitch some questions if they have anything specific. So Carissa, our content and growth marketer <laughs> mentioned an interview that you did with, uh, uh, growth marketing today, I believe.
1: Right. Yeah. That was, uh, I think a couple of years ago now,
0: probably yeah. a while ago. So like, let's, let's take that with a grain of salt here. But apparently you said that you don't actually love copywriting, even though you're good at it. <laughs> Does this ring a bell? And if so, can you explain more?
1: it does. And it makes me sad that I said that two years ago and I'm only just now really looking at changing things. I guess the pandemic had something to do with it. Um, I'm sure like a lot of business owners when the pandemic hit, my expectation was that business was going to dive and that I was going to have to just take whatever I could. And so I did that and I just kept doing the same old thing because I knew people would pay that would pay me for that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really make any big changes during the pandemic, but, uh, now that we're kind of on the tail end, I I see that my business is not going to die because of COVID. I'm lucky. Um, yeah, she's she's right. So it's not that I you know don't respect what copywriting is or what it can do for a, a company or um, that I absolutely hate it. It's just um, it's I've kind of grown out of the role that I gave myself in 2015. Mm-hmm. That that would be the way that I would I would describe it and on top of that, I feel like, um, you know, we all feel our best when we're providing the most value and I can write copy. Um, but so can other people. Uh, when I, when I got started in 2015, you know, I wrote, I called myself a SaaS copywriter. I published a couple of pretty mediocre posts. And I was immediately ranked number one for SAS copywriter because no one, no one was really thinking about doing that at that time. Whereas now there's pages and pages of results. What what these people that are now joining me in the, in the search results uh, don't have is seven years and, um, over 100, uh, SAS clients under their belt. And with that experience comes what we were talking about earlier. You know, I'm able to look at positioning strategy, like messaging strategy. Um, and research in a way that a lot of these other freelancers just can't get. And so, yeah, I do see SAS copywriting as something that I'm less interested in and I'm more interested in finding the next crop and um, stepping back from that a little bit, showing other people how to do what I've been doing and, and focusing a lot more on everything that comes before copywriting, basically delivering the guidance and the briefs that I wish I had, but I never did.
0: <laughs> Does this mean building up into an agency and hiring people to execute under your brand? Or is this more so like thinking through coaching or courses or sort of educational, you know, becoming more of a teacher in that aspect?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely all in the works right now. Um, so I have been actively speaking to SaaS copywriters, freelancers that are in like year one or two, but I see some promise in, in what they're doing. I kind of see myself in 2016, 2017 in them. Um, so I've definitely be thinking about, um, at least contracting to start. I don't know if I would do a full-time hire right off the bat, um, just to kind of test that out and, and see how that works. Um, I have been doing some coaching as well. Uh, I've, I've taken on one client. I've turned away basically everybody else. So I wasn't sure if it was something I wanted to do, but the right person reached out where I thought I could get some real wins for them right away, and I have. Um, so that's also that's also in the books. But yeah, the, the main goal is just to get to a point where I'm not logging in to Google Sheets or balsamic and wireframing and writing copy because I've just done it so many times now. And I, I think there's other people that can do a really good job of it as well, especially if they have some of my guidance um along the way.
0: Yeah. So I, I think about this concept of like the anti-day or like um what I don't want to spend my time doing often. And like I use that to reflect on what I do want to spend my time doing. So what is the ideal life for you or what's the idea like you wake up on a Tuesday like what do you what do you spend time doing and you can even frame it from the opposite like what do you what do you not want to do when you wake up on a Tuesday
1: yeah so when i wake up on a tuesday um i do not want to be as i said logging into google sheets taking a look at all of my research and then fussing over headlines subheadlines body copy and and uh wireframes um which is honestly how i spend a lot of tuesdays right now but um, i have gotten a lot better at closing those, those research strategy positioning projects where the copywriting isn't even part of it. Um, so I, I do have some of that work mixed in now. Um, yeah, actually that's an interesting question. I think you asked something similar to Pep or at least Pep was talking about, you know, why does he keep building businesses?
0: Yeah. He had a great answer there.
1: He did. And, and mine is, is kind of similar and I was, I was happy to hear it because, um, you know, except, except he wants to win at capitalism. I actually, I don't have a strong desire to win at capitalism. I'm not anti-capitalist. It's just, I have what I need and and I'm, and I'm happy with that. Um, so the reason I I would have told you in 2016 that I'm probably going to do this for the rest of my life is because, um, like all I care about is doing something that people value enough to pay me good money where I have control over my time and I can live the type of life I want to live. But what's happened is I'm bored. Um, Mm-hmm. And so it's not winning capitalism. It's not getting rich. That's motivating me. I'd be happy to make the same amount of money just being less bored. And so that's what I'm working towards now is making the same amount of money or even a little bit less if, if, if that's what's required for a little while, but to actually enjoy the work again, like I did in 2015, 2016. So my ideal day would be, um, waking up on a Tuesday, um, go through a little basic morning routine and then have the work that I do be more, um, like on the advisory level. Um, so speaking to founders, having them ask me questions, answer their questions, speaking to um, freelancers or employees, answering their questions and helping them move forward versus me actually going in and, and doing all of the execution work myself. That's, I think that's the next dream that I'm working towards. And I'm sure that won't be the end as well. I'll get bored of that too and and have to find something else. But I think that's the next stop for me. <laughs>
0: I really resonate with that. Um, I think Nassim Taleb has some quote around like the only rule is avoid boredom. And um, yeah, I find I find that there's this conversation around burnout nowadays that actually negates to talk about the fact that boredom leads to burnout just as often as overwork does. And in fact, if you're over, if you're very strenuously working towards something you really enjoy or is challenging in the appropriate way, I find that I can work to, twice as long. But if it's yeah. if it's boring, I'm like. I can't can't even like physically open my laptop sometimes. Like it's just so mind numbing to me that I I feel this, this sense of apathy and burnout. Um, and I think that's under, under talked about now. It's, it's nice that we're going into burnout and talking about like self-care, but there's also an aspect to it that challenge will light you up in a way that actually makes you want to spend the extra hours.
1: Exactly. And, uh, I mean, I've been toying with this idea of um, kind of sub-contracting, subcontracting some of this work out for a little while. But the thing that really pushed me over the edge was earlier this month, I woke up to a similar amount of leads that I would get in like a month, but it just came overnight. And I told my <laughs> wife and she's like, why are you so like, you look so stressed. Why are you stressed about it? Is it because it's going to be too much work? Is like, because if they close, I'm going to have to write so much copy. <laughs> and so it was like kind of at that point where I was like, I should not be sad when my inbox is is like lighting up with leads. I should be excited about that. The problem is not the leads. The problem is I'm still making myself do a lot of the work that like you said like i'm bored of i'm I'm bored of doing it.
0: Are you good at recognizing when you feel that boredom or does it take you a little bit because for me, it's always a lagging thing like it'll be months later and I'm like, oh, I don't actually want to do this. Wow
1: um, it is lagging. I used to be a lot better at it when I was younger but when I was younger, I would make rash decisions. Like I would be like, I don't like this anymore. So I'm going to drop out of university for a year and, you know, like train in boxing for a year and see what happens there. And then realize that I don't want to do that and I'll do something else. Whereas now um, because I'm a little bit older, I think I, I'm able to, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Take some months, like recognize when I'm feeling bored and that I don't want to keep doing something, but then keep doing it while thinking about the next thing <laughs> strategically versus just reacting
0: did you actually drop out of university and train in boxing?
1: I did. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> I was, uh, this was like way back when this was like, I was probably 18 Yeah, probably like 18 or 19. I had been boxing already, um, and grappling up to that point, And I was doing both and I was just really loving boxing and grappling. And I was hating my first year of university. So I did, I dropped out of school and, uh, I was training boxing and, and grappling and, uh, what I learned during that time was there's a very big difference between enjoying something and then looking at it as like, this is what I'm going to do and doing it every day. What I realized is I, I hated doing it every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So, yeah, I, I stopped it actually all cold turkey, got out of my system and, and went back to school. And I'm glad I did. But that was the way I used to react to that feeling of being bored. I would
0: just run from it. Sometimes you have to learn those things though, by making that jump. Like I know for myself, like I thought I was going to get into music and I studied music my first semester in college, (laughs) same exact story. Once I started doing it every day and breaking things down at the level of like, you know, intricate music theory, I stopped enjoying it. And I'm like, you know what, maybe, maybe I'll just do business (laughs) and play a little guitar on the weekends. Like that's probably sufficient. But had I not done that, I never would have known. And I probably would have just always in the back of my mind thought like, oh, I should have gone into music and it maybe would have been a regret.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. No regrets uh, for making that decision. And the other important lesson that you learn is that you can go on a path, step off of the path, try a different path, step off that path and get back to where you started and you're going to be okay in life. Whereas I think people who are really good at, at living that that linear life where they get amazing grades all the way through school, they go to university right away, get amazing grades through university, never switch their major, go to grad school and then like become a professor. They, they I feel like they're fragile. They don't if they run into, um, any type of adversity, they don't know that they're going to actually be able to deal with it and hop on a new path and succeed there as well. So yeah, I I would highly recommend it, especially if you're younger and you you don't have a whole lot to lose.
0: So we, we talked about like this, uh, heuristic of avoiding boredom and seeking challenge, but, um, do you have an idea for the long game or like, I, I asked Pep this question, who are you chasing? Right? Like, do you, do you have an idea of like, something in the future where you're aiming towards or how do you think about that?
1: Yeah. um, So if I were to look at like one person that I think is, I don't know if they're living the life that I would want forever, but like the next life where it would be a pretty clean break from my life right now. um, I don't know how to say his whole name. He's known as G. Do you know G? Yep. Uh, For sure. Yeah. So for me, like he is doing exactly what I would want to do one day where He's seen as an absolute expert in his area. People bring him in, amazing companies bring him in. They award him equity and I'm sure a very healthy fee as well. And I don't think he's, he's necessarily in there writing copy, but what he's doing is he's taking what he's learned from so many reps, seeing the guts of so many companies and applying it to the next company. That is where the founders have maybe seen the insides of two or three SaaS companies and they're not quite sure what to do. So I think he's, if, if I'm chasing somebody, it would be somebody like that for sure.
0: Do you think if you got to that point, you would miss copywriting or, or have to do some sort of writing on the side?
1: No, I don't, I don't don't think so. Um, no. And, and again, it's not because I don't like copywriting or it's, it's not useful. It's just, I've done, like, I I would hate to look at how much copy I've actually written over the past (laughs) seven years. It'd be, it'd be tombs of, of copy. I'm sure. Um, I'm, I would always be happy to speak to a copywriter and if they had questions, answer those questions. Like I, I'm still very passionate about persuasion and, um, getting people to, to do something. I think that's a super valuable skill in and out of copywriting, like just being able to speak to people, whether in writing or, uh, through voice, um, to get them to, to actually act. I think that's so powerful and I'll always, uh, highly respect that and want to be involved. I just don't want to be the person agonizing over the headline,
0: um, going forward. Why do you think you were or are a good copywriter? Like, do you have some skill, trait, background experience that you attribute that skill to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's base level is um, I can write. Uh, I wouldn't write a novel, but like, I, I know how to get my my thoughts actually down onto the page. So that's, that's a prerequisite that a lot of copywriters get started with without even having in place. So uh, once you have that, I guess the next thing is I've always been deeply interested in psychology and that's what I spent my time studying at, at university um, psychology and physiology. So just how the human body and, and mind works has always been interesting to me. So I think, I mean, once you go through cognitive science and social science, a lot of the things that speak, people speak about as like um, new and, uh, and shocking is just like you learn about that in like psych 101 if, if you had taken the course. Um, so th- that was definitely part of it. And then I think the other part is um empathy. Like I I'm, I'm just a I'm a fairly empathetic person. Um and actually, if I had to think about one other thing, I think it's it's rooted in a very early interest in entrepreneurship that dates back to like being a kid and in high school. Like I was always I was always hustling, trying to make some money. I, I watched my parents start and, and fail a business. And so just kind of seeing that that power of being able to sell um, probably also made it a lot more interesting to me when I actually found copywriting
0: much later. This might veer us on a path outside of copywriting and content, but... Sure. That interest in psychology and uh, physiology is interesting because I I share that. So do you follow like Dr. Andrew Huberman and Rhonda Patrick and and that whole crowd of like kind of biohackers and optimizers or is that...
1: No, I haven't. I think like the, bio. I, I find like the people that are able to get into the biohacking and like tracking their sleep and their exercise. Like I'm amazed by the, by, by those people. And I wish I could do it, but I have the type of personality where I would become obsessed with it and it wouldn't <laughs> It would, would backfire. It, yeah, it, <laughs> it would backfire for sure. So I unfortunately don't dabble in the, uh, in the biohacking, but I, I love, I love uh, like reading about people who do that. And it's, 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 in, it's interesting. Do you do that?
0: Uh, yeah. I'm trying to get out of it actually. Cause it is same thing. <laughs> like I found myself optimized in every area of my life except sleep. And then I started to think like, maybe it's because I'm so fucking stressed about every other part of my life that I'm tracking and, you know, I've got my aura ring on. And it's like, maybe if I just walked outside more, I would probably be able to sleep better. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the, the, the ground level foundations are the same. You you have to go through this like trough where you're like, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And then you realize the the error of your ways and you go back to the basics again. So
1: Exactly. And like, just like a real example for me is I was always into and I still do like I have a nice gym downstairs in the basement, but like I I like to lift weights. Um, But when I was younger, I would read about like what you're supposed to do the best exercises and squats are always named like the best exercise you put a bar on your back and you squat it. I would hurt my back every single time, no matter how much coaching I got on it for whatever reason. Um, so old me would have optimized and be like, you need to back squat. So make sure you're getting the back squats and it doesn't matter if it hurts now. Like I don't, I do not do back squats and my body is just fine. So, um, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's so much
0: it's not- simpler than people want to want to make it. It's like I, I, this is way tangential, but I went down a rabbit hole during the start of the pandemic where I, I was quote unquote trying to get jacked. Right, yeah. <laughs> like I was like, all right, I've got all the time in the world. I can fully control my diet. I can control my exercise routine, and there's no social distractions. And I was doing all this biohacking stuff before, like I was all in the trends, of like keto, intermittent fasting, like all that crazy stuff. And then I hired this coach who's like, Hey, you just need to lift like three or four days a week. Nothing crazy. We can give you a plan if you want, but honestly just, you know, bench squat, deadlift, do do your basic stuff. And then you're going to eat rice, vegetables, chicken. Like it was just so basic. I was like, wait, I don't have to like, time my meals or my protein synthesis and around my like optimal windows. It's like, no, so, like I threw away all the biohacking shit and actually got progress. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So the basics are it.
1: Oh yeah. I, I talk about this all the time and we can definitely get back to the content, but I think this is really important. And it kind of ties back to the idea of like coaching and courses and things like that. There's a lot of money to be made by overcomplicating something that's quite simple and then selling the the answer or the solution and that's what i've always wanted to avoid when it comes to if i'm going to create a course or coaching the one thing i want to avoid doing is overcomplicating something simple so that people think they need to pay me and that's probably why i haven't created a lot of courses because the answer is not usually in the course. <laughs>
0: totally, it's, it's
1: uh, so yeah. Same thing there. There's money to be made in overcomplicating health and fitness, so that they can sell you something.
0: <laughs> and there's probably some some benefits at the margins. You know, the the extreme fringes and nuances. But for most people getting into things that way, it's probably not optimal. Like I, I think it was Ross Hudgens and, and Neville Medora who had a podcast, and Neville goes, "Isn't content marketing just about content and links?" <laughs> and Ross is like, "Yeah, I mean, there's some nuance, but." Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. I was like, that's a good way to teach it. You know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 But that wouldn't sell as many courses. It's too easy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what's the the, explain like I'm five, what is copywriting? What's it about?
1: Yeah. I would, I would describe it as getting someone to do something that's in their best interest through the written word. Um, And I think that through in their best interest is an important part. That's what, that's what differentiates copywriting and persuasion from manipulation, which I think is what most people are thinking about when they say like s- selling is gross. Um, so yeah, just it's it's getting people from point A to point B, where point B is a better place for them than point A. And it's, it's using writing to do that.
0: And you mentioned reading a lot on psychology and some of these persuasion tactics. Like, do you want to talk about some, maybe some of the most interesting mental models that you've come across over the years? Or like, how do you how do you, what, what levers can you pull to get people to do things in their best interest that you want them to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, in terms of an amazing book to read that I would say is a great starting place for anybody is, um, influence, um, from Cialdini. And I think he's got another one called persuasion that I read recently. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and basically it's, it's leveraging the like the building blocks of most of our relationships and and kind of what makes us human. So things like reciprocity is uh, is super important Um, future pacing. We're all trying to be a better version of ourselves. So if you're writing copy and you can show them like, this is where you are right now, this is where you're going to be. That's also important, which kind of gets at empathy as well, which is another pretty core attribute of being human. If You can show people that you understand their current place. They're more likely to believe that you have a way to get them to this more desired uh, future state. Um, yeah, I would say those are, are a few of the big ones. And obviously there's little like mental tricks you can play like urgency and, and things like that. But, um, I feel like maybe at, at least in SAS, people are wising up to that a little bit. You're typically selling to a more, educated, uh, sophisticated buyer, and they can kind of see through those tactics that might work in like the, you know, health and fitness and financial, uh, like direct response niche, for example, I think you need to stay away from some of that, but yeah, it's really just the the, the basics of, um, of, of showing people that you understand where they are right now you have a good idea of where they're trying to go you have a path to get them there you give them value before you ask for anything I mean those basic things will, will take you a long way in, in themselves
0: so I know we always we talk about like uh, benefits versus features and emotions versus kind of rational thinking then that's probably a, a- needless dichotomy but um i would imagine that sas companies especially the enterprise b2b ones like probably over leverage the rational the feature-based stuff and this stuff that you're talking about here sounds like it falls much more on the side of the emotional mm-hmm. the persuasive um the benefits driven right? right so do, do you have to bridge that gulf uh, when you're talking to clients like do you ever get pushed back and say like hey like even though this is a enterprise b2b product like these people are still humans and they still respond to the same triggers, like social proof, reciprocity, et cetera.
1: Exactly. And it is, I do get a lot of pushback there. And it is one of the reasons that, uh, I don't take that many enterprise style clients on. That's one of the reasons. The other one is it's a lot harder to actually get on calls with, uh, with their customers and, and survey responses. And I feel like I'm just kind of wordsmithing ready in the dark, which is like the exact opposite of what I want, what I, what, what I want, what I want to do at this point in my, uh, in my career. Um, and I will say though that there is a time and a place for that kind of dense feature capability type copy. And I found that to be most effective with like a very technical crowd. So if you're selling an enterprise product where the person landing on the website and making decisions is like the CTO don't, don't try to, um, like sugarcoat what you're talking about. Like they're, they know what they're talking about. They want to see, they want to see a lot of that, um, uh, I guess you could say like uh like the documentation even can be a, a good selling tool for them. They want to see the nuts and bolts of the product, and from there they will be able to ass- uh discern whether or not it 's going to do the things they need to do they don 't want you to uh, be like don 't worry about features like these three benefits are what you 're going to get from the product. you know you can just trust us, sign up for a demo and 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 buy the product, and then you 'll be able to realize uh these benefits they want to see the nuts and bolts, so there is a time and place for for the feature uh capability driven copy that uh i don't think it's spoken about enough it's it's almost just repeated without thinking about it that you should just focus on benefits but uh yeah for sure i run into that
0: i i have kind of a wild thought with the enterprise first off i don't think they actually talk to customers that's i don't know if that's controversial <laughs> but i don't think enterprises talk to customers but second i wonder if um for, forget like very specific technical features i wonder if there's a cargo cult thing going on or like a prototypicality where if, it, if it's jargon, if it, if it looks and feels like an enterprise site, long form, small text, language that doesn't make sense, that almost helps. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I wonder if it looked too modern, people would almost have like this subconscious belief that their superior is not going to take it seriously because it doesn't look enterprise. And I don't know, maybe it would backfire if you actually added like what is almost objectively good copy.
1: That's that's actually a fair point. Um, no, that that makes a lot of sense, and I, I don't think I've ever been given the freedom to actually test <laughs> that hypothesis. Uh, it always still ends up, end up ending up looking like a like a, a typical enterprise site. But that's it's it's totally uh, understandable that if if you're used to seeing a certain type of website in an enterprise company, and you've had good good results with them after you got past their crappy copy and their terrible website. And then you come to a site that looks like a, like a MarTech startup. Yeah. You might be thinking like, yeah, they're just trying to get enterprise money for an SMB product. Um, So there, there there's something there, but I, I really hope that over time we can shift it away because I don't think an enterprise website has to be so terrible. Yeah,
0: I hope so. I also have a conspiracy theory that they make it deliberately confusing. So you have to get on a demo to understand what the product does. Cause sometimes I know a product and I know the space, but when I look at their website, I'm like, if I was new to this, I would have no clue what this does. I would yeah. have to talk to somebody just like by necessity.
1: Yeah. And if they're a large enterprise company, it could be that, but it could also be, um, one of the reasons that I, I like my sweet spot is usually like that series a series B fairly small company is that the committee hasn't really taken over yet. Whereas when they get to be a huge established enterprise company, like every decision, every word is being run by, or is going to go by like 10 people they're all going to have their own inputs and what you get in the end is just a mishmash of what everybody wants and it reads a lot like an enterprise website <laughs> yeah for sure Not very compelling no clear point of view it's just it's it's the it's the copy the messaging that doesn't offend anybody uh, on the committee
0: <laughs> yeah so outside of like copy by committee which I, I think is incredibly common do you are there common copywriting mistakes that you see companies making
1: um I'm trying to think of there's something that's like just small and tactical. Um, I guess one thing that I see on a lot of websites that I think is a missed opportunity is testimonials that have either a being dumbed down. So they're just like a nice pithy one or two lines. I <laughs> basically say this product is amazing. Uh, I think that's a big wasted opportunity. And two, testimonials that are dumbed down or not but hidden in like a slider more or less where they think people are going to get to the bottom of the page which if you've looked at any analytics you know a lot of people won't reach the bottom of the page and that they're actually going to sit there and watch those testimonials scroll by which if you've ever watched recorded sessions you know people don't do that either um i think there's a much better uh, use for social proof and that is Let it be a little bit longer, let it be specific, but then make sure it's contextual so that it's actually like slotted in alongside something you just said. So you can build this pattern of, we say something, we make a claim, and then we show you that a real customer is saying the exact same thing, basically echoing it back. I think that's a much better use of social proof. I mean, some basics that I'm sure you heard, uh, at at your time at CXL pep talk about the the sliders useless, Mm -hmm. like in the hero section, totally terrible, um, headlines in hero sections. So this is something that a lot of companies do wrong and it's a high impact area of a website obviously is like really vague headlines. And this comes from looking at like the incumbents in your space and, and giants like Apple, where they think they can get away with it as well. Whereas they'd be much, much better off like with a very specific headline that says like, this is what we do and who we do it for, or this is what we do and why we do it better than the people you're probably considering alongside us right now. Um, That would be a huge improvement for a lot of different companies. And then I guess the, uh, another thing I run into a lot is, um, companies who have a lot of different features and then feature pages, they will use the homepage to drive them into like individual feature pages. And what that does is unless they then go through a lot of feature pages, it gets them thinking about your product as like this little point solution when really it's a much like broader platform and it skews, hmm. it kind of skews their view of the product. And then when they get to the pricing page, they're like what it's 500 bucks a month. And it's because they never really, they don't see you as this complete, I, I hate to say it, but like all in one solution, they see you as a, as a little point solution and and the, it just doesn't match up with the, uh, the price tag. Um, so those would be like a few high level things that I think a lot of people listening could go to their site and be like, oh crap, we're, we're doing all those things.
0: <laughs> yeah, seriously. That's super useful. And that, that problem of like the multiple pro- like product and feature areas, I, I feel like that could get pretty complex, but I, I hadn't really thought of it that way in terms of like the holistic pricing and the holistic look at it versus the specifics.
1: The other thing actually, um, that I'm sure almost everyone would find if they had some recorded sessions using something like hot jar or full story is you will see people land on your homepage and then immediately go to the pricing page to see if they should even be considering this, like if it's in their price range and what most pricing pages do is you'll click over to it and then you'll have your tiers right there and you'll see it's like three tiers. But if, if you think about that common pattern of landing on the homepage and going right to the pricing page, those prices aren't attached to any type of value. You have really no idea mm-hmm. what you're getting for those prices. So what I like to do actually is if someone clicks on a pricing page, um, you know, at the, at the very top, it might say something like pricing or a headline that alludes to the fact they're on the pricing page, a testimonial or two that talk about ROI, Um, so not just like, this is a great product, but you know, we're able to do so and so five times faster, or we've saved $50,000 this year because of this product, then maybe like three to six of like the core benefits, features, or capabilities that, you know, people value and then the pricing table. So that if someone just goes right to the pricing page in a, in a little bit, they'll see that like whatever price you're going to see, there's an ROI on it. People are getting an ROI and they have at least a high level of what they're getting for that money. Um, so I think that's another opportunity for a lot of people.
0: That is genius. That's amazing. I'm definitely yeah, going to do that.
1: I'm trying to think if there's a website live right now that would have done this. I think, um, I think my wife, my work for Price. No, not Price Intelligence. Well, PracticeIgnition.com. I think if you go to their pricing page, you'll you'll kind of see something like that in play. I think it's still there.
0: Do you have uh, th- these are amazing, by the way? But do you have any? Are there p- pieces of copywriting advice or common tropes? that you don't agree with? like, Do you have contrarian beliefs about some of the most commonly spoken about copywriting tips?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, A-B testing, you got to A-B test everything. I don't agree with that, especially in my market. I think most of my most of my clients aren't actually in a position to A-B test. I think we spoke about that a little bit earlier. Um, the other thing is don't look at the competitors. A lot of people will say, don't look at the competitors, just do your own thing. And I think that's also terrible advice. I think the problem is people look at their competitors to see what they should be doing rather than looking at your competitors to find the gaps that you can actually exploit. Like, um, so you're one of 10 companies doing a fairly similar thing. Like, is there something that you all do that customers really value, but no one is really taking ownership of like, we are the email marketing solution that does this. The other ones do it too, but you're the one that's making it like a star of, uh, of your value proposition there might be an opportunity there and you will not find that unless you look at the competitors, unless it's like pure luck, basically. Um, and I think this is becoming really important too, because so many SaaS product categories are getting, uh, very crowded, very competitive, similar customers are all doing the voice of customer research, which used to be a differentiator, but now everyone is doing a really good job of it. And so if you're not looking at your competitors and trying to purposely differentiate from them, you've got a similar product, similar customers. You're going to say similar things if you don't look at each other so i i do think you need to to look at the the competitors and this is a huge opportunity because most people would disagree with that and they would say like don't look at the competition and i i think that's similar to the advice of like don't um if, if you're making a product like don't don't ask your customers what they want don't talk to your customers don't ask your customers what they want, but yeah, you should talk to your customers to see what their problems are because they have a really good idea of what types of problems they need to solve. So it's, it's similar. It's just, it's good advice taken out of context is it's kind of what's happened there. Yeah. Um, so th- that would be a big one for me for sure.
0: I mean, it's like run your own race. Like I feel like when people get overly concerned about benchmarks and like where these people are in terms of their story, like that gets a little bit Weighty and and irrelevant, but mm-hmm. the the buyer's journey, especially in B two B and SaaS in specific, is so comparison oriented. Oh, yeah. And even to the extent that like people are getting written about on listicles, on affiliate sites, on G two, like what's the language people use to describe those products? Like how are they des- describing themselves? How do you stand out when compared among all these different options? Because it's like people are window shopping at this stage, and if you just look the same but slightly cheaper, slightly more expensive, unless you are already like the category leader, unless you're like MailChimp or something. Like how do you, how do you differentiate? Right.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think we're getting to this point right now, which I'm not sure if you've seen any of the stuff I've been writing about, like a category story, for example, but, uh, I think this is just like a natural evolution of, of a space. So, you know, in the very early days, um, you know, Salesforce did the heavy lifting, and once they were able to convince people that SaaS is a viable way to deliver um, like business software, once that was out of the way, if you had if you had a solution to a real problem, that was pretty much enough. Even if your messaging kind of sucked and your position kind of sucked, if you got in front of the right people, that was enough. Um, but then more products enter the space, marketers get a little bit smarter, and now you have to at least like accurately. Um, talk about what you have. It doesn't have to be pretty, but if, if you can if you can have a solution to a real problem and communicate it in a way that people can understand, then like that's the next way to win. And then after that it's like you need to have the product, you need to be clear in what you do and communicate it clearly, but you also need to like pile on the voice of the customer, like this layer of the voice of the customer. And that's how you get that relatable copy that, you know, the end user or the technical person, um, doesn't necessarily need, but the, but the buyer does need, uh, this kind of voice of customer. And now I think we're getting to this place where marketers are even smarter. They're doing the voice of customer. There's a lot of good products. And now we need to help the customer, um, not just add another solution to their consideration set, but, give them permission to stop their search, which can go on forever and just pull the trigger on one and, and feel good about moving forward. And that's where, like, like you said, th- this comparative um, messaging is, is is going to become a lot more important now. And that can be explicit, like compare, like comparison pages, but it can even just be like in your homepage in your why us page and throughout the website, rather than it just being like, why us like show how your your product is a reaction to something that you've seen in the market because it should be anyways. Like you didn't, you, you started your business for a reason. You, you launched this product, the 21st, um, you know, CRM for small businesses. You did that for a reason. What was the gap that you saw? Like, let's, let's message to that. Um, that would be a way to stand out and help people actually make a decision.
0: Yeah, it's cool. And, and I feel like all this maps maps back to where we started the conversation, which is like positioning and product strategy. And like, how do you answer that question? Like, is this the best not is this the best product but is this the best product for me and how do you carve that space out and i feel like that just has to map back up to like your overall positioning and strategy
1: exactly yep
0: do you want to do some rapid fire non-content questions sure (laughs) cool um who do you admire professionally and why
1: um yeah so i'll give a few answers obviously g which i think we spoke about already um I also, I find the people that I admire are the ones who aren't super flashy. They're just really smart. So like I I admire Pep, for example. Um, I think he's a really good example. April Dunford is another one where, you know, they've got a big following. Everybody trusts them. They're doing amazing work, but they aren't... they're not like trying to be thought leaders, but they are, if that makes sense. You know, you know how people try to be thought leaders and they're not really. Yeah, yeah. You like, have some people like that.
0: Have pop-ups on their website that have themselves yeah, wearing pajamas saying make money while you sleep.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. they have just, they've got a body of work and I guess the name of the podcast, like they're playing the long game. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's easy to forget how young you are um, when, you're, when you don't feel so young, like I'm in my 30s. But like, w- what could I do fifteen years from now? Even then, I'm still kind of young, right? So, um, yeah, I admire people like that for the most part. Joanna Weeb is another one um, who, again just just kept doing the work uh, and 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 rather than do one thing that like make gives them like their breakout moment, it's just it's the accumulation of sticking sticking to it.
0: That's a great answer. Yeah, that's that's how I want to grow too. Yeah. Um, which talent would you most like to have?
1: I heard you asked this on another episode and I didn't have a good answer. Um, I would love to be, I don't know if it's like a talent cause it's more of like a skill you develop, but like, I would just love to be amazing at like math. I think it's awesome to be able to get into like, to really understand like theory of numbers and get into like advanced physics and be able to just do that. Like for fun would be <laughs> amazing. But, uh,
0: I don't know if this is like a myth or not, but I've heard that, uh, Stanley Kubrick used to do like advanced, like theoretical math just for fun, like to relax his brain or something. (laughs) Sounds like one of those things that you would create as like this myth for yourself, this aura (laughs) of mystery.
1: Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah. That would definitely be, uh, I would love to be really good at math. (laughs)
0: Um, another question I always ask is if you could create your own category in jeopardy, what would it be? And would you get every question, right?
1: Ooh. Oh my God, that's tough. Hmm. I think I would... I think maybe this goes back to those love letters. I've always been a bit of a romantic, but I think I've got a really good handle on like the topic of marriage. Like how to actually make a relationship work and i think i would get a lot of those answers right
0: <laughs> that's a good one that's that's yeah. an important uh knowledge set yeah for sure yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everybody else has very trivial things you know well, it could be like a like a reality tv or like I, I think somebody somebody turned it around on me and i was like blink 182 songs <laughs> or like tony yeah, hawk characters it's or question. something
1: yeah it's, yeah. i'm and it's why i kind of stumbled on one of the questions that you had there about like mental models i don't um There's some people that are really good, like they'll read a book and it's just like they remember it the way the author wrote it. Whereas I always kind of describe my experience of reading lots of books is it, is it washes over me and the big ideas kind of stick. I can't tell you the names of them or anything like that, but when it comes time to actually think in a certain way, I can, I can pull from it. I don't know which book I'm pulling from, yeah. but, but I'm pulling from something. So
0: yeah. The message has landed though. That's, yeah, that's the, the important the message, thing.
1: The message lands and I won't use the right terms, but it, it has landed and I can use it. Um, so yeah, that's probably why I wasn't able to give you a trivial, trivial answer because I won't Remember anything or, or most things about about something like a reality TV show? That's
0: a good meta answer then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I love this question. Do you, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? This is a hard one.
1: Oh man. Do you have a list of virtues that I
0: could? Choose I should on? do that because yeah, it's like you, I mean, it's all it's relative, I guess, but like you know, honesty. Patience, politeness, um, organization, cleanliness, like, you know, just things that people with good some- character have, you know?
1: I'm looking at something about Aristotle's 12 virtues. Um, I will say ambition is overrated. Um, that's probably like the least popular answer for a business
0: podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think ambition is overrated?
1: Um, I don't know, like, I guess at the risk of getting too deep, no matter what you accomplish here, it's still small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. So I think it's far more important to just make sure that you're enjoying your life and uh, helping other people around you enjoy theirs as well. If ambition helps with that, fine. But if if you actually think that, you know, by building a, a hundred million or $1 billion business that you've actually done something amazing in and of itself, because you've got a bunch of money and, and people think you're amazing, like, I just think that's you haven't you haven't you haven't actually really done anything of substance this is just one little planet in a a very big universe and there's lots of people before us and lots of people after us and uh who was it uh marcus aurelius i think talks about this how you know um you're going to die and even if you were an emperor there's a really good chance people aren't going to really talk about you and they're not going to think about you so like don't hang on to that stuff too much so ambition for ambition's sake thinking that having some sort of list of accomplishments is going to actually mean something in the end, I think is overrated.
0: That's yeah. I like that. That's, uh, I can't remember the specific person that said that. I think it was a comedian that said this, but, um, to that Marcus Aurelius quote. They're like, I don't even know my great grandparents' names or like great, great grandparents' names It's in my family. And it's like not that long ago, like 200 years ago. I don't even know them. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're all going to be, uh, we're all going to be forgotten. And that's freeing but if you think about it the other way it's it's sad
0: <laughs> for sure so uh, what's a career choice that you considered but didn't pursue
1: med school um when i was an undergrad i was thinking about med school and uh that caused a lot of stress obviously because you need like amazing grades but the uh i guess the one upside of that is that when i decided not to go to med school and i did a a master's degree instead in what was basically like an mba focused on digital business um I had great grades. And so I was able to get a scholarship to that. Um, But yeah, med school is something I was very uh, close to to heading towards. And I decided not to.
0: I have a lot of friends going down that path and in that path. And I don't envy it. It's like the level of stress they have and how much sleep they get is I feel awful complaining about my life. (laughs) And (laughs) and like, Oh, I had a hard day. I had to like send Slack messages. They're like, Oh, "Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and the, and the thing for me that really turned me mm-hmm. off is when you really get past like the prestige and the fact that, you know, your whole life growing up, you're taught that doctors are amazing people and and they are. But uh, once you get past that and you think about the reality of your life, um, there's a lot of rules in place and for good reason. And for somebody like myself, like, I don't want to be in something where the path is already kind of decided for me and I just have to kind of stick to it and, and do my job. I kind of like, like what we're doing right now. We're not we're not really sure what the next thing is going to be. We're not sure how well this podcast is going to work or if you're going to have to try something else. Um, there's no rules. It's just experimentation, seeing what works, and that that fits better for my personality.
0: Uh, same here. I thrive in that state. I, I think I had to write like a what do I like doing, what do I not like doing type thing. as a part of a career call when I was at HubSpot. And the thing that came up, up in mind when I was thinking about what I don't like doing is anytime I'm like told specifically what to do, like exact instructions. And I just feel like I'm on some assembly line, regardless of how hard the problem is in front of me, it just feels, I don't know, stultifying. It's, it's something where I just like completely glaze over, (laughs) lose interest. And I, I had a brief flash where I was like, maybe medical school. This is pretty early on. Um, I thought about law school too, but yeah, my, my uncle's in the medical field and he's like, oh, you could choose this path. And just started thinking like, I'm like, this would be interesting, probably intellectually, but the same thing deterred me, which is, this is a very linear, very carved out path. And I want a little more uncertainty.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we find ourselves where we are.
0: <laughs> For sure. Um, easy last one. Where can people find you online? What do you want to promote? What do you want to talk about here?
1: Yeah. So in terms of uh, like, if you're listening to this and you think you might want to work with me, swaycopy.com, that's my, my main website. If this idea of telling like a why us and not them story kind of resonated, what I briefly called a category story. Um, I have a newsletter there right now. It's completely free categorystory.com. And in terms of social media, at Copy on Twitter is probably the best place to find me.
0: Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. super fun.
1: Thank you.